Hello, and welcome to Mondays with Mac. My name is Dr. John B. McIntosh, licensed professional counselor and certified advanced alcohol and drug counselor. I apologize for my brief stay uh, this past month. I've been taking a break for the summer to wind down from my previous college course and to prepare for my summer course, which begins next week. So I welcome you back to listening to my series. Today we're going to talk about humanistic psychology, existentialism, and a phenomenon known as the dark night of the soul, which we will be addressing. First of all, some personal observations which I like to share every week uh, that I do this uh, presentation. I fervently go to the gym three to four times a week uh, doing various exercises. And in the gym, I like to do my personal observation of people. Fascinating. Uh, I always pick on cell phones because they are a source of uh, a pet peeve of mine. In most cases, they are useful. However, we have become addicted to them. First of all, at the gym, sitting in the sauna, six other people sitting there, all of them on cell phones. Some were singing and moving to the sounds of the music on their phone. Others were talking loudly as people were sitting there in the sun enjoying themselves. And others simply uh, surfing the web, social media, etc. Again, this is an example of how people are so distracted and so uh, out of touch with the present moment. And we, we all know, and I keep teaching this to folks in my classes, there is no past and no future, it's only now. So every moment you're spending on social media, TikTok, Instagram, um, Facebook, etc., every moment today is gone. Now is gone. There is so much to be enjoyed in this present moment, so much life and living. But instead, we distract ourselves. And this gets into existentialism, which I'm going to try to explain why people are so addicted to social media and their distractions. Um, another phenomena is when I'm actually in the gym, when I get out of the sauna, I do a circuit of machines. Uh, after I run a mile, I do a circuit of machines. Frustrating to see how many people are sitting on benches, sitting on the machines. Again, cell phones. Constantly texting, surfing. Uh, in between sets of exercises they do, sometimes losing track of how long they've been on the phone, taking up a lot of time on the machine. So, again, folks, please, you must balance your life. You must embrace the present moment, because someday you're going to wake up being an elderly individual and wonder, did I live a good life? Did I live to my fullest? Did I actually enjoy life? And deeper questions like, am I happy? Have I ever been happy? So these are some reflections that some of these distractions take us away from until ultimately it's too late. Now we have to look back with regrets and remorse. So I encourage everybody to take the Zen approach and be in the moment everywhere we go. Uh, another observation, this is on national news just last week. It made me chuckle, but at the same time, it gave me grave concern about the nature of the world. We have a shortage here in the United States of lifeguards at our local pools and lakes and ocean. 
and they're calling in people in their retirement in their ages of 60s and 70s to uh, be lifeguards since young folks will not. So in a survey taken of uh, young teens and early 20s, why they don't want to take the post as lifeguard, even if it pays well, their response was, surprise, surprise, they can't be on their phones enough. And being on a chair takes too many hours away from the media and surfing the web or talking and texting. Folks, I hope you can see the dire situation that this is creating. What is wrong? Asking my college students how they date today. And it's all hookups. It's all through social media, uh, Tinder, etc. They don't know how to face or confront each other or even talk with each other face to face. They feel inadequate. So these are some insights of what we're going to lead up to with existentialism. First, I'd like to read you this little quote. Uh, favorite quote or words of advice. When asked, quote, what surprised you most about humankind, end of quote. God is said to have answered, quote, it surprises me that they get bored of being children, are in a rush to grow up, and then long to be children again. That they lose their health to make money, and then lose their money to restore their health. That by thinking anxiously about the future, they forget the present, such that they live neither for the present nor for the future. And it surprises me that they live as if they will never die, then die as if they have never lived. End of quote by unknown author. Very, very powerful message, folks. Living is in the now. Anytime you go to exercise, hike, walks, Please, no earbuds, no cell phone. You can keep the phone on you in case you get a call, but please, be in a moment. Listen to the music of nature. That's what our body attunes to and able to be able to relax and be happy. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about humanistic psychology. Um, first of all, Humanistic psychology is both old, meaning it's philosophical, and it's new with the human potential movement, which began in the 1960s and 70s. Many treatments popped up as a result of uh, humanistic psychology. And what's really interesting, humanistic operates from an orientation of psychology rather than specific content or approach or technique. It looks at the totality of the human being following what nature intends. That's, thus, I'm asking people to please be in the moment. Can you sit outside and just be still? No music. Just be still. Listen to the music of nature, the birds, wind in the trees, the insects buzzing. Please get back to who we really are meant to be. And a humanistic psychology also looks at the influences from within, and from without our universe. Humanistic basically was largely introduced by William James. He was a physician uh, in the eight, late 1800s. He's also known as the father of modern psychology and became a firm uh, title in 1958 that psychology was finally accepted. Uh, however, as I said in previous talks, psychology, when separating the two words, psyche and ology, Ology means study of. Psyche means soul or spirit. So psychology's original purpose 
was the study of the human spirit or the human soul. That was William James's intent when he described psychology. He is known, uh, I'm sorry, humanistic psychology is known as the third force in psychology. The first being analytical with Freud, the second being behaviorism with Watson, etc. The third, humanistic, and I'm trained in the fourth movement called transpersonal, which we will get more detail later. Michael Murphy is a gentleman, a businessman, who opened up the Esalon Institute in 1962, which further advanced the field of humanistic psychology and studies. It was a very important step in the movement. Some techniques used at the Esalon Institute for your reflection think how you may react. They do what they call encounter groups. Encounter groups where you get a group of people together, could be 10, 12, 15 people sitting in a circle, and you come into a room early in the morning. There's no direction. There's no uh, dogma. There's no guidance. You sit in this group, and there's, like I said, no direction. So what happens is you begin to talk. Again, no topic, nothing. You just begin to talk. And then all of a sudden, other members begin to talk. And the group flows. Now, counter groups go all day long with a lunch break and then, of course, little breaks in between and ends around 4 or 5 o'clock in the evening. And what happens in these groups without any guidance, without any professionalism involved with it, people tend to project uh, onto each other um, somebody they like or dislike. So heated discussions can arise. Loving embracing can uh, become involved. But it's amazing when you get a group of people together, this is what William James observed in his waiting room of his physician's office, that when you get a group of people together, they start processing on their own, projecting, transference and counter-transference, looking into issues that are unresolved within themselves, with their spiritual lacking. They tend to bring out, and other people are there to heal, confront, or agitate so that the healing process can begin. That's encounter groups. At the Esalon Institute, I'm not sure if they still do this. I haven't explored it recently, but it wasn't in too distant past where I was exploring the Esalon Institute. And they finally evolved into what they call nude encounter groups. Fascinating. The philosophy or the premise behind all this, if you think about it, the armor we wear every day is our clothing. Clothing gives an impression. Clothing can hide us. Clothing can be a mask. So without clothing, how can you protect yourself or how can you put on the illusion of somebody that you're not? How can you wear a mask? You're totally open. So this has been a very interesting concept, which makes the whole issue of the uh, group dynamic even deeper because now you have to face issues of shame. You have to face issues of body image. You have to face issues of no protection. So these groups have been profoundly powerful in helping the human psyche to heal. How do you feel about your body? How do you feel about the clothing that you wear? And notice the clothing that you choose presents an image. What image are you portraying? These are some reflections I'd like you to think about as you uh, try to think about what humanistics all about. With the advent of technology and industrialization, man began to lose sense of meaning and purpose to his life. 
Look at us today. Just look at us. Running. Money-oriented. Power-oriented. Promotion-oriented. Why? What's, how much is enough? I've run into colleagues who say, I've earned my doctorate. I spent a lot of money. So I'm going to charge my clients as much as I can because I deserve my money for how much I've worked for. I listen to them, and if given the opportunity or the chance, or if they ask me, because I tend to be quiet unless people ask, if they ask for my input, I simply say, I got my doctorate. I couldn't afford to go uh, all at once for four years in a row. Instead, I went part-time, and it took me 10 years taking two courses at a time, traveling 90-some uh, miles each way for 10 years, taking classes twice a week in the evenings after work. The good thing about this, I didn't have to borrow any money. I paid cash all the way through graduate school. I wanted this degree. I wanted the knowledge. I wanted to be a better me. Never through all this process did I ever think, since I paid so much for my college and I worked so hard, I want to make big bucks. I want to make, I want to charge people two or $300 an hour. I don't do that, folks. I, I, I'm not against making some money, but how much is enough? Me personally, I've struggled and continue to struggle with taking money for human emotional pain. So instead, I've transformed myself to see myself as a guide, more or less a spiritual guide. So clients coming to see me are looking for meaning and purpose in their life, looking for a big picture beyond the titles and ego. And that way, I feel comfortable taking a fee for teaching, for guiding. So again, I don't attract the uh, people I used to when I worked for agencies with uh, bipolar, borderline, schizophrenia, et cetera. Now I attract simple uh, moderate or mild to moderate depression, anxiety, relationship problems, and people looking for meaning and purpose. That's what I attract today. I personally charge $65 a session, and it's a fee for service. I don't take insurance because I try to protect confidentiality, but realizing if I took insurance, I could earn at least $150 a session. Not my big thing. I'm not about the money. I'm about guiding people to a better life. If the money comes, great. If it doesn't, it's not going to be my sole purpose of doing my work. These are some of the frustrating topics that come up when I used to go to a lot of the counseling and psychology conventions of hearing people uh, talking constantly how to increase their referrals, increase their caseloads, make more money, get nicer places, bigger offices, more colleagues. Again, it goes on and on and on and on. So in other words, even in the counseling field, it becomes capitalism. So I'm not about this. If you are, I'm not judging you. I'm just asking you to look at your life. Are you happy? Okay, are you happy? Is money going to make you happy? Is earning big bucks going to make up for all the work that you did? Is that the only reason you did the work you did? Think about this. Humanistic movement be, uh, became an anti-establishment movement in the 1960s and 70s. It started with the freedom from rule-appropriate behavior. 
It needed to expand one's consciousness by means, any means possible in order to move beyond ego limitations of knowing oneself. So in other words, today we tend to identify ourselves according to what we do, families we come from, titles, jobs, etc. It moves away from the dichotomies of male, female, life, death, good, bad, etc. And it looks at a continuum. A continuum that has no beginning or end. It just is. In its community involvement and development. Sometimes uh, some of the foundations of humanistic psychology, humanism is strongly phenomenological, experiential. In other words, it's a conscious experience of the now. It insists on man's essential wholeness and integrity. And I question people's integrity. Do you act the same whether you're being watched or not? That's integrity. So simple example is when you're going down a road and you have to make a left turn. Nobody's behind you. Nobody's in front of you. Do you still use a turn signal? That's integrity. You just do. Okay. It insists that human beings retain an essential freedom and autonomy. Simply put, maintain the freedom of choice. It is uh, anti-reductionistic and it believes that human nature can never fully be defined as human nature is always evolving. So, existential encompasses four main themes since we're going to be talking about existentialism. One, we are confronted by a universe devoid of any clear-cut or easily fixed meaning and purpose and face the inevitability of nothingness or death. I'm going to talk about death and dying in a future talk, folks, but for now, I hope you realize there is no proof of anything beyond death. There is evidence, but no proof. Your religions are faith-based. Again, no proof. Scientifically, we know that energy can't be destroyed. So, the energy that's contained within our body, call it spirit or soul, where does it go? It's not, you can't destroy it, so it goes somewhere. And that leads up to many different theories of death and dying, which we're going to talk about at a later date. Number two, uh, we must take responsibility for our actions. I once read a definition, I don't remember the author's name, but a definition of sin. That definition, not like the religious connotation, but uh, his connotation was sin is having knowledge or insight and not taking action steps. Think about that. Think of how many times you have insight and knowledge, but you do not enact it or uh, put it into action. That's a sin, and I like that definition very much. Number three, we're faced with the omnipotent constraints that in the person's situation places upon his or her freedom. Always confronted with constraints. Number four, impossibility of evading responsibilities for one's actions. You know, we all make mistakes, folks. It's inevitable. You will make mistakes. I believe many of which are innocent. And the true character integrity of a human being comes forth in how you handle your mistakes. Do you hide them? Do you lie? Do you cover them up? It doesn't show great integrity, but if you own it and you own your actions, it gets better. Truth and love do prevail. 
Humanistic psychology began as a philosophy. It reminded man that even though we seek meaning and purpose, there is, in fact, uh, only biological existence. Here's a quote to think about. Quote, I am. One day I was not. One day I shall once again no longer be. End of quote. So this leads to a very deep philosophy, the ultimate aloneness. No matter how many people you may have surround yourself with, you are alone. In the deathbed, no matter how many people are in that room with you, no one's dying but you. Keep these thoughts in mind. Acceptance of one's mortality and eventual death is needed in order to fully begin living in the present moment. I recommend to my clients and students to spend at least 15 minutes a day reflecting upon their death and the death of their loved ones to fully accept that this is all temporary. We tend to live as though we're never going to die, but you've got to remember it's temporary. We even avoid things by not making a decision, but not making a decision is a decision in and of itself. No one but you can give meaning and purpose to your life. No object, no position, no power, no money, no person in your life can give meaning to your life except from within you. So we face the issue of being and non-being. We may have a sense of what I was and what I am, but cannot be certain of what I shall be or experience. Human nature is always in the process of defining itself. In the act of being born, we are thrown into a world in all the circumstances. We can never fully understand past experience as we never lived them, but we can choose to fantasize what it was like by gathering much data. Working with clients again, especially with families, it is so fascinating to see as adults how many people have different memories of their growing up of their childhoods. They lived with each other. They slept in the same bedroom. They played together. But their memories were drastically different. Again, this is all the perceptions that evolved from within. That's why you must get in touch with who you are inside. Question. Do you experience yourself as what you are or as the I that is? Looking at self subjectively gives one the realization that one reacts to the world around him or her and can choose to modify circumstances at will. We shape our lives. Looking at self objectively perceives from the outside. Defines self according to how others see him or her. Feels acted upon and done to in life. This perception can often lead to the victim mentality that I work with on a constant basis. People that seem that they don't create their own uh, issues, their own misery. Uh, it's something that's done to them. They couldn't help it. When in fact, no matter what happens to us in life, we choose how we want to respond and how we want to cope. We need to balance the internal and the external for a healthy life. Can't experience being fully without looking at non-being and facing the dread of death. Each moment of life becomes precious as one realizes the 
existence is finite, temporary. So I'd like you to think about some of these things as we look at some of the existential possibilities. Um, we have the uh, authentic versus inauthentic phenomena going on within us. Authentic is confronting the ever-present state of non-being, making decisions in the face of uncertainty, and taking responsibility for those decisions. A complete authentic existence is an ideal way to live. Again, it's that inner knowledge of knowing this is all temporary. We don't know where we're going to go after this. We have philosophies, we have beliefs, we have faith but no proof. Inauthentic being is validating oneself in ways to avoid the specter of non-being. Example, as I talked about before, seeking status via jobs, money, titles, education. All these things can be a mask to say, look at me, look who I am, and be in total denial that this all ends. Uh, for instance, I uh, do a little experiment with my students in class. I bring in some of the teaching awards I've won throughout my life. And they're on these plaques. They're beautiful. It's well-earned. I appreciate it. But then I show it to my class with all the degrees I've earned. And I say, okay, see this plaque? When I die, where is it going to go? And they said, you have children. They can have them. I said, no, I don't have children. Well, then a family member will take them. Okay, so a family member takes them. When that family member dies, what happens to those plaques and awards? U ultimately, all these things will end up in the trash. Ultimately, some people will remember me in their hearts. Others will never, will never remember. I'm dead and I'm gone. We must accept these things, folks. We must accept the existence of non-being. So this leads to existentialism versus neurotic anxiety. So existential anxiety is an appreciation of death, which also brings about anxiety. Individuation can also create existential anxiety. We are born alone and we die alone. This is not a pathological thought. This is fact. We die alone. Okay. Neurotic anxiety is pathological. One lives according to expectations of others. People-pleasing. Trying to do the right thing to make someone else happy. This limits, limits life's meaning to avoidance of harm from others. So, this two, two different types of anxiety. Existential is looking at death, trying to live fully and completely in a moment, but fully realizing that there is an end. The neurotic anxiety is pathological. This is the one that involves much work, and it is a sickness in and of itself. Anytime we live for others instead of living to be and be accepted for who we are, that creates neuro neurosis. Then we have existential versus neurotic guilt. Existential guilt is whenever we have brought real hurt or disappointment to another, we create guilt. Whenever we fail to fulfill our own living potential, who we can and ought to be, that creates guilt. Neurotic guilt is self as object. In other words, we accuse self of being a failure in others' eyes. Wonder whether we are good or evil, or do we deserve to be forgiven. That's neurotic. We all deserve forgiveness. We all know we make mistakes. We all know that we're never a failure. We're challenged but we don't fail. 
this is existentialism in action and something that I like everybody to reflect upon in your life. How much are you giving your life to your electronic devices and computers? How much are you giving your life to not being in the present moment? Every moment you spend in the past regretting your past, having remorse and bad feelings, today is gone. Every moment that you work hard to develop that future, to have that big pocket of money, to have that position, that title, that education, every moment, today is gone. So, you define and you think what it means to live fully in this moment. And I hope you come to the conclusion that it's people, it's life, it's the surroundings, it's the uh, nature, sunshine, snow, rain, it's everything in the now. Be still, observe, feel, reflect upon death every day. Reflect upon yours and those you love. Please, folks, turn the devices off and be. I wish you well, and I think I'm, my next talk will be on death and dying. It's a very uh, deep subject that needs to be addressed because our concepts of death are also changing in this modern world. So on that note, I wish you well. We are living in crazy times right now, but we can make change like Gandhi did with the India. He did not pick up guns and weapons. Gandhi sat still and changed India from British rule. On that note, take care. Be well. Goodbye.